So it, it is kind of a strange place to, to find something that connected so deeply with me because uh, on the surface, as you can imagine, Paul is winding down his letter, right? He's, he's coming to the end, and, and he's, he's already written uh, to these saints. He calls them uh, those in Rome in chapter 1 who are loved by God and called to be saints. And, and we know that at this point, uh, the, the main thing that is going on here is not uh, difficult to understand. He's, he's extending greetings to folks and, and commanding them in a sense, uh, giving them exhortation to specifically greet uh, folks. And, and it's a pretty long list of, of people in these 16 verses as we just saw. But as I read this, there is a truth that jumps off the page uh, at me um, beyond just the, these, these closing commands to, to, to give these greetings. And, and I'll show you, I'll put this up on the screen, this, this idea what, what, what I, I, I see from this as I read it and has been true in my life for over 40 years as a follower of Jesus is this idea that the longer we are Christians, the more God forges deep friendships among a diversity of believers, especially among those who labor together for the Lord. This is just like jumped off the page at me, that the longer that you're a believer, the longer that you're a Christian, the more the time goes by, the years that go by, the decades that go by, the longer we are Christians, the more God forges deep friendships, deep relationships uh, with a diversity of people especially among those who labor together for the Lord. So I'd love for that phrase to kind of guide us uh, through this observation that's jumped off the page of me, starting with this idea that the longer that we are Christian, the more God forges deep friendships. The, this observation uh, came to me uh, through the question, as a result of the question, how did Paul know all of these people? Have you ever wondered about that? How did Paul know all of these People. Now, we know that it was, it, it was Paul's ambition to go to Rome, so that tells us that he hadn't been to Rome yet. So just think about it. He's writing this, this letter to a church that he hasn't been to yet, and we know that it's his ambition even to go beyond Rome. As a matter of fact, of all of the things that the book of Romans is about, we found out, we discovered, of all the things that it's about, one thing that the book of Romans is, is it's a missionary letter. He's asking them for support, for financial support for the mission of the gospel to extend to Spain. Uh, so that's partly what's going on here. But it's a letter, nonetheless, that has gone ahead of him to a church that he hasn't been to. So again, if he hasn't been to this church, how does he know all of these people? And you can trust my work. You can do the work uh, yourself. But there are 27 names listed here. And actually 29 people, if you include uh, people like Rufus's mother, who's not mentioned by name, or Narius's sister. And it's, it's a possibility that Paul didn't, didn't know all of them. Maybe he knew about some of them. Uh, maybe, that he knew, maybe he knew Narius and knew that, that he had a sister, uh, but didn't know the sister. You know what I'm saying. That, but the idea that we get here is that he knew these folks and had a deep affection for these folks that had grown because he uses words like my beloved one. 
if you are paying attention. My dear one, my kindred, my compatriot, the one loved by all. These are all descriptions that are seeded into the names that we just read. So again, how does Paul know all of these people in Rome when he hasn't been to Rome? Well, because the longer you are a Christian, the more God forges deep friendships with people. And, and if you think about by the time that Paul had written the, the letter to the Romans, this was probably 57 AD, he had been a Christian and in ministry for 20 years at this point. So 20 years has gone by in his life. And Paul had experienced a number of seasons of life, uh, just like we do. Uh, and Paul had experienced uh, the experience of moving around and traveling just like we do. And so uh, he, he was saved, and then he went to Arabia for some time. Then he went back home to Tarsus. And then he was in Antioch for a season at the church there. And then you remember they were praying, and the Spirit said to lay hands on Paul, Saul, and Barnabas. And, and they sent them out to preach the gospel and to plant churches. He would then accomplish three missionary journeys, right? preaching the gospel, planting churches, and, and all along the way what was happening, except that God was forging deep friendships in his travels and among these people, right? As, as he's going along, all along the way, he was meeting people, and he served alongside of people, including some that we see in our list today. But Paul's experience was like ours, right? That the longer that you're a Christian, God forges friendships among Christians. How many of you have Christian friends that are in another city? <laughs> That's all of us, right? How many of you met friends here who are Christians who are no longer here? They're in a So you met them at this church, but they are in a different city. How many of you is that? So a lot of us, right? So what would you do if you had an opportunity to write to the church a letter, which for you young people was like a paper and a pen that you would like scratch onto, but if you could write a letter to the church that some of your friends are at, what would you do except toward the end of the letter say, would you please say hi to Jerry and Jack, right? And what comes to your mind as you think about Jerry and Jack are the, the flood of memories and, and ministry maybe and the time together that we were, we were locking arms in proximity to one another and serving the Lord together and trusting the Lord together and worshiping the Lord together and weeping together and suffering together. You know what I'm talking about? The longer you're a Christian, this is what God does. He forges deep friendships among us. And, and that just jumps off the page. How did Paul know these people? Except that God did in his life what he does in our life, which is he connects us to one another. And he forges these bonds. And all he's doing is he knows that they're in Rome now. And he gets to the end of his letter. He says, please say hi. Please, please greet and he, he names them by name and talks about his deep affection for them. What a, a list we have here. We see partnership. We see friendship. We see affection all through these names. 
But we also see is the second part. Not only does God forge and form deep friendships, but he, he, he forges deep friendships among a diversity of believers. And if you just start where Paul starts at the very top of the chapter in verse 1 with Phoebe, Phoebe is a woman. We certainly see from the very outset gender diversity in this list. Paul greets men and he greets women in this list. And with Phoebe, we find a significant worker, a ministry friend, a, a ministry partner in the gospel with the Apostle Paul. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Paul writes, he starts this whole thing with, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Chantria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Now, many of the commentators make the observation, if not the definitive point, that because Paul addresses or acknowledges Phoebe in this way from the very outset, that she was most likely the messenger trusted by Paul to bring this letter to the Romans in the first place. And if custom holds, she was also most likely the first person to ever publicly read the letter to the Romans to this church. That was the custom of the day. The messenger would read the letter at its first reading. And that, that's a maybe. We don't, we don't know that. But what we certainly do know is that she is called a servant in the church of Chantria. And maybe you know probably that the Greek word for servant, diakonos, is, is the word we get deacon from. And certainly diakonos is used to describe servants in general. All Christians are called to be servants, but it's also used to describe the serving office within the church called the diaconate, which you have here uh, at your church, this, this servant serving office. So while every Christian is called to be a servant, a servant to one another, a servant in your home, a servant in your church, but for Paul to directly associate Phoebe to a specific church, She's a servant at Chantria, the church at Chantria. It gives us the, the real indication that she was actually a deacon in that church and not just uh, serving as a, a deacon, deaconess in her church. But Paul says she was also a patron and patronage was such a huge part of the ancient world. And again, you, you probably know this, that, that there were wealthy people who would support financially and physically in, in ways um, philosophers and teachers and even artists. I think this is, I think that this is still a thing today. There's, there's a thing that is the, the patrons of the arts. Um, I don't know what that looks like in Philadelphia, but I imagine at the, at the museum in Philadelphia that there are patrons and you can find out who they are. They're using their money to support um, artists. So there's a sense that, that this is what she was to many, Paul says, but also uh, to him. That, that she was a, a patron to him. And if you, if you think about Phoebe, what an amazing place in New Testament history she holds. The impact that her life had on the Apostle Paul. And Phoebe isn't the only woman mentioned. There are ten women who are named. And these seven, Phoebe, Prisca, Mary, Junia, Tryphena, Tryphosa, and Persis, are specifically honored for their hard work, Paul says, and their ministry. They're co-laboring in the gospel with the apostle 
Paul. And then you have this woman that's not named, Rufus's mother, I, I mentioned her before, who Paul says was like a mother to me. So here's my question, moms, how? How was Rufus's mother like a mother to Paul? And again, we don't know, he doesn't say, but I can imagine it involved food. Right? I mean, if, if, hey, tell Rufus's mom, hey. And what didn't make the Bible is, and her lamb chops are fire, right? <laughs> yes. So I'm, I'm guessing food, but not just food. I'm picturing like, like a mother who is so wise with advice. Can you imagine this this? mother-like figure to Paul sitting across the table from him as he bears his heart to her. And then I can imagine her packing him a lunch for his trip and giving him a kiss on the cheek and telling him to be safe, right? Rufus's mother was like a mother to me. We certainly see uh, men mentioned here. We see women. There's certainly gender diversity here. And this shouldn't surprise us because the story of the gospel The recording of the New Testament and the heart of God consistently and unmistakably and not subtly honors the gifting, contribution, importance, and partnership in the gospel of women and men in the scriptures. And this, from the matriarchs of old to Deborah to Ruth and Esther to Mary, the mother of Jesus, to the women who followed and cared for Jesus, to Mary Magdalene, the first woman to see the resurrected Christ and tell others that he's alive. Uh, To all of these women listed here, neither the Bible or Jesus nor Paul discounts or or, or, or downplays the role of all of us. Um, And it's amazing to see gender diversity, but we also see class diversity in this list. Again, the scholars can't nail down a lot of the specifics about these folks, but studies do show that there's a connection between names often in the ancient world and then status or position uh, in the ancient world. So Priscilla and Aquila, we do know that they were Jews from Rome who Paul met in Corinth. They were probably tent makers like Paul. Um, They were probably well-to-do, therefore. Um, And certainly they were educated. Uh, They had space to host a house church in Rome, as did Aristobulus, we found out, and Narcissus. So to own a, a, a household large enough to accommodate a group required some, some wealth and some means. But then we see a name like Herodias, who was probably a slave or a former slave, because oftentimes the slaves would take on the name of uh, their owner in the household. So they didn't even keep their own names. They just would take on Another name, so Herodias was most likely a slave. And then Ampliatus, again, if you study this, Ampliatus was just the common name of an imperial slave at the time. It was just a a very common thing to find and meet somebody named Ampliatus and find out that they were a slave. And then maybe Andronicus and Junia or Tryphena and Tryphosa, they might have been middle class. The point is, in the Roman church, think about these names, you had the wealthy and the poor. You had... The educated and the slave, you had the merchant and the missionary, and everywhere in between in this church, diversity. And then finally, there, there is for sure racial diversity in this list. And again, the, the scholars study these names, and, and, and the, the main thing that jumps out is you do see Greek and Jewish names. And the, the Jewish-Gentile division 
was the primary racial division in the first century, and particularly in the church. And we know that from, from some of uh, Paul's other letters. Um, and so you had Jews and Gentiles together, and there could not have been a larger gap between people, between physical appearances, between upbringings, between customs and norms, between food preferences and allowances, between leisure activities. There could not have been a further gap between Jews and Gentiles during that day. It was a racial divide. But then we find out that, that Rufus's mother was most likely the wife of Simon. And if you, if you track it through the New Testament, Simon was the one who carried Jesus' cross when he couldn't anymore. And it says that they were from Cyrene, which is, is modern-day Libya. So either they were Jews of the, of the dispersion that found themselves in, in modern-day Libya, or they were Africans. Um, and, and that's actually most likely the case. And so you have the, this, this racial diversity that's also a, a part of the church in Rome. And only Christ can do this, Right? I mean, this is what we know about the power of the gospel, that the gospel of Jesus Christ unites us because of the spirit of God in us and because uh, that we're all united to Christ. We are brothers and sisters together in Christ, no matter who you are, no matter your gender, where you came from, your educational status, your economic status, the color of your skin. We are one in Christ. We are brothers and sisters, even in such a way that, that transcends our own natural families is what we're told, right? So it shouldn't surprise us that there is diversity in the church in Rome. I think what's just so neat to me, so cool to see is, is Paul has written about this union and, or unity that we have in Christ together. Um, he's, he's preached the unity that we have in Christ together. But in Romans 16, we see it playing out in his very life. Paul doesn't preach one thing and then do something different. He does not preach one thing, the unity that we have in Christ, and then have a small monolithic group of close friends that are very much like him. He's greeting 27 people by name, men and women, slave, owners, wealthy, rich, all in between, diverse people that he loves and has deep affection for. He's living what he preaches. The longer that you're a Christian, God forges these deep friendships with a diversity, a diversity of people. And then this is the third part. Especially among those who labor together for the Lord. And I just, I just want to note a kind of common connection between these relationships. It's a common bond that, that stands out. Um, and it's simply the idea of, of the work that these folks did together for Jesus in his kingdom. It's, there's like this connective tissue. As a matter of fact, I think, do we have that picture of my notes? I'm, I'm like you, you know, you study and you just try to make observations. <laughs> You're just trying to figure it out, right? And so this is the list of, of folks that are then described as a patron and then fellow workers, and then Mary has worked hard for you, and Urbanus is a fellow worker, and greet these workers in the Lord, and, and greet the beloved Persis who worked hard in the Lord. What is the connective tissue that you see between these names except that word work? 
work. I mean, we, we're, we've, we're working hard together in the Lord. There's something that it's not just friendships based on commonalities or the fact that, that God has, has led us to, to like and want to attend this church together. It's not just that surfacy. It's the fact that God has united us in a mission together. And that God has, has given us a work to do together. And as we co-labor in Christ, it's as if these friendships deepen all the more. And again, you, you probably know this just as well as I have. Have you ever, have you ever been a part of a, a ministry team? Have you ever been on a missions trip? Isn't it amazing how close you get to people that you might not have known as well, except when you're seven days together in Dominican Republic? I mean, you come back as if you're best friends. You're going to do Christmas together for sure. You've bled together, starved together, sweat together, and it's, and it's in the working together in the Lord. Have you ever planted a church with someone and what that looks like to get going and to, to see progress happen? Have you ever suffered together with others? You guys have recently gone through some things. But, but in a general way, if you are a part of a service team, if you are a part of a ministry team, if you are a part of a community group, if you are a part of a pastoral team, um, and anywhere in between over the last two years during COVID, we all went through something together, didn't we? And we're never going to forget it. This unprecedented thing that happened to us, this unprecedented thing. I've never seen anything like it in my lifetime, and I'm not even really that old. At least I tend to think that myself, and I'm not. But I've never seen anything like this in my lifetime, what we just walked through. So, so what it required for the church to continue to go forward, and, and all of the reports that you've heard are absolutely true. We had no idea what we were doing as pastors. We were trying to figure it out just like everybody else. Yet with this conviction that God was at work and even in the midst of this wanted us to, to be connected and to worship together and to hear God's word and to do that, whether it was virtually at first, but then try to get back together, sensitive of all of the opinions and all of the, the ways that we could do it. But if you think about what we've been through, when we, we've been through something, you and I will never forget this. You'll remember 10 years from now, 20 years from now, what it was like to be a part of this church during COVID and the ways that you were stretched and the things that you needed to do and the, the friendships that were forged as we all had to figure this out together. I, I wonder if you can see this passage drips with friendship. It's saturated with the joy of what it means to serve the Lord together, to be a, a part of a diversity of, of people that are united by Christ and united to something that he's called us to. And it's, it's a passage that's soaked with affection. You know, we get this, this greet one another with a holy kiss. And, and we don't do the holy kiss, right? I mean, we're, we don't do that here. We got our version of that. Um, I do go to uh, the Dominican Republic uh, with a, a church that we're partners with down there. And they do the holy kiss. You're going to get both cheeks. And it's a sign of, of affection. And you can feel it. Um, it. It feels like family. You're reminded that we're brothers and sisters uh, together, but it's it's a it's a, a physical affectionate sign that that we love one another. 
That's how this closes. Greet one another with a, a, a holy kiss. I, I wonder if you can see why this became a really sweet passage for me. It became a favorite. Uh, and it's because it's true. The longer we are Christians, the more God forges deep friendships among a diversity of believers, especially those who labor together for the Lord. And if you think about it, how kind of God to do this very thing, because we long for relationships. That's one of the deepest existential questions of our lives. What are we here for? What, what, is, our, the, what is the purpose that God has for my life? And we know. That, that God answers that question in the gospel, not just in uniting us to Christ and saving us and forgiving us of all of our sins because of his death and resurrection. But God unites us in relationship to one another. He unites our hearts together. And, and there's, there's that sense of, of, of longing for relationship that we find in Christ and in one another. But there's also simultaneously that sense of purpose that we receive from Christ together. And, and especially as we labor together and what God has called us to and what God has called you to as a church through the ups and downs and through the, the messy and because we're on this side of glory, through the brokenness and, and when this goes sideways. I, I was thinking, and, and I'll, I'll close with this. I was thinking about um, think about the Lord of the Rings. Are you guys Lord of the Rings people or is, is that too dated? Okay. So you know, you guys know the movies, the Lord of the Rings movies. So you get to the Return of the King at the end of the Return of the King. And there was like five endings to that thing, wasn't there? I mean, that, that movie just wouldn't end. I mean, it was like they had to wrap everything up. But the ending scene that, scene that, I, that I think about in this regard is that scene where um, it was after they got the ring and after the eagles had rescued them off of Mount Doom. And there, it, it kind of comes on this scene where Frodo's in this bed and it's kind of like whitewashed. And it's after all of this. He's obviously recovering or recovered. Um, and he wakes up. Do you know the scene that I'm talking about? Yeah. So he wakes up. And then what begins to happen is the, the music cues... Um, and then it kind of happens in slow motion, but then the doors open, and then the hobbits run in. Do you remember that? And all they do was they just were laughing. They just were laughing, and oh, and they're jumping up and down on this bed together. And then do you remember, like, Gimli comes in and gives this, like, knowing wink to them, and then Legolas and Aragorn come in, right? And then Gandalf comes in, and... And Frodo, slow motion, Gandalf, you know, or whatever it was. And, and Gandalf just starts laughing, and they're just laughing. There's no dialogue. They're just laughing and laughing. And that strikes me so deeply in this regard, because I think that's what heaven's going to be like. Because they had been through something together. And it was through the... The, the, the forging together through these very difficult things. They, they knew at that moment the joy of what it meant to be a part of a fellowship that they were in and what they were able to accomplish by God's grace. Even though Tolkien, I don't know, would, attend, uh, would attribute that to God's grace, but you know what I'm saying. Like there's this sense 
that I think in heaven, we're just going to be reconnected with people and we're just going to laugh. We're just going to laugh and somebody's going to come from your life from 25 years ago or 50 years ago when you were first saved in college and we're just going to laugh. And, and the people in this room that you have labored together with, that day in glory and, and even with the things that have gone sideways because, because all will be covered by the blood of Christ and there'll be no more sin and no more relational conflict anymore. We'll be in heaven, right? We'll be... And we'll just, I think we'll just, we'll just, it, what, a, what a celebration and a reunion it will be among deep friendships that God has forged, especially among those who co-labored together. So what are we living for? Except this moment where, where we see our Savior face to face and the calling that he's given us to run the, the, the good race, to fight the good fight, right? And, and those words of well done that we all long to hear for us. But don't you hope that you'll be close by to some of your friends when they hear that from Jesus? I, and I don't know how it's going to work. I've got so many people in my life that I just hope to be nearby when Jesus is honoring them. And then maybe we'll just laugh and laugh at, at all that God allowed us to accomplish together by his grace. I see all of that in Romans 16. It's a strange place, right, to find uh, such encouragement from the Spirit that God is doing something in us. And he's worthy of our lives. He's worthy of our friendships and our partnerships. He's worthy of the tears and he's worthy of the joy. And one day we'll see him face to and we'll be together in eternity. I wonder if you've, you've been to a reunion. You know that feeling. It's just so good to see people. I just can't wait till the new heavens and the new earth for that regard and so many other things. And by the way, if you're, if you're not a, a believer, you, you're, you're here and uh, I'm so glad you're here. I know everybody, the pastors are, but I'm just telling you that, that in Christ there is the, the kind of purpose that we long, that you long for, what's your life about, the kind of connection and, and longing for, for real friendship that you're looking for but just haven't ever found. It's found first in Jesus Christ who loves you and died on a cross for the forgiveness of your sin and rose again and is now overseeing the spread of his gospel throughout the world and he's included us in it, which is such an amazing thing. But I would, I would encourage you to, to come to Christ today and find life. Yeah. Look to Christ and find life. But for the rest of us, I just, I'm grateful to God for the partnership that you share together as a church. I'm grateful to God for the partnership that our churches now share together. And, and from a, a personal place, I believe God's done something this week. I personally thank God for the partnership that's forming um, with your leaders and, and, and with you. And um, so I thank God for that. So let's pray together and thank him together. Father, we, we just thank you for your word, how brilliant, how powerful, and, and there's just no section, Lord, that you haven't uh, inspired and, and ordained as, as your word that has power to give us perspective Lord, I pray for the one who, who is potentially grown weary in doing good. Lord, I pray for the one who, who has wondered, even in the, the, the quiet place of their, their own heart, 
is all this really worth it? But for the one who, who struggles, the, the one who is, is lonely, Lord, I pray for the lonely. That this touches on a place where that longing for, for deep friendship, Lord, I pray that you would walk them into that. Or because we know that, that you have forgiven us of all of our sins and reconciled us to yourself through Jesus. And Jesus, you have knit us together, united us by your spirit. And so, Lord, I just pray for strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, Lord, that you would revive us and refresh us in this journey of following you and living for you and in a world that's not ultimately our home. But I just pray that you would continue to forge deep friendships here in the partnership that this church has together. For the glory of your name, amen. Amen.